Privit, and welcome to Yuki Life Abroad. So far, we can all agree 2020 has proven to be a challenge. But while we've been soldiering on, Ukrainian President Zelensky has celebrated his first year in office. In this episode, we'll be breaking down the highlights of his year, including a deeper dive into the terrorist attack that occurred in the city of Lutsk last week. So Zelensky was elected into the presidency on the 21st of April 2019 by a landslide. He won with 73% of the vote. On the 20th of May, he was inaugurated and the ceremony was attended by foreign officials from Georgia, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Hungary, the European Union and the US. Um, I just wanted to uh, make note of uh, something that he said in his speech, which I thought was quite interesting. He said, we must become Icelanders in football, Israelis in defending our native land, Japanese in technology, and Swiss in our ability to live happily with each other despite any differences. And I thought, huh, that's so interesting, but also very cliched. But simple message for a simple guy, as he claims <laughs> to be. Did you say Iceland? Yeah. Because of how they did in soccer, like they came out of nowhere. Oh, gotcha. And yep, cool. did really far. I was going to say, because I don't remember Iceland doing European well in, football. Uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, it was just NRL. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Also, during this speech, he made an announcement that he would be disbanding Parliament, which um, that convocation had been formed in October 2014 after the Maidan revolution and the overthrow of Yanukovych. So publicly, he claimed, you know, that it was for lack of trust. And I think at the time, the Verkhovna Rada was sitting at the low digits of like, I think, 4% of public trust towards that. So why do you reckon, Andre? Uh, well, first things first, Zelensky, he hasn't been in the, the political sphere of Ukraine at all for the past like five years or so. Um, even though he says he does have like a law degree or anything, but how qualified is he if he's had no prior experience and then instantly becomes president? But um, the reason why he's become president was is because of the Messiah complex that a lot of Ukrainians have in Ukraine, where they believe that this newcomer will solve all their problems. He'll like whip out like a wand out of nowhere, like wave it all about, fix everyone's problem, get rid of corruption, uh, like move to the West and stuff, and make Ukraine pretty much like the Swiss of Europe. Right? So that's like the whole idea. But um, one thing that they need to realize is that no one is a messiah in or well, in government at least right because a lot of the things that Zelensky has said most likely will never come as do any politicians uh, promises that they come up in election so like that's the reason why the public trusts government yeah. officials so lowly after a couple of years in office yeah the first year like you're soaring high and then Everyone starts realizing, oh, you're just as bad as the last guy. You're not much better anyway. You haven't done much anyway. So it just tanks and the next four years or so is all just... Everyone hates you. Everyone hates you. Everyone thinks you're corrupt, right? So, yeah, it's there's no real winning in um, in Ukraine's government at all until like it's been reformed, until society has changed their mind. That's kind of why Zelensky's had this whole agenda against them, though. Yeah, it's interesting that you say um, no change can happen until reform happens. And I feel like maybe that's what Zelensky was trying to do. You know, his first act as president was to disband the Verkhovna Rada, um, which technically was illegal according to the Ukrainian constitution, but he still managed to do it anyway. Yeah, so many saw that as a cynical attempt that he was trying to ride his wave of popularity 
and kind of sweep into government his party so he would be able to do whatever he wanted. And um, Parliament kind of foresaw this happening. So what they tried to do was they allowed their governing coalition to fall apart. Yeah, because according to the constitution, um, a new Verhovna Rada can't be formed within 60 days of the old coalition falling apart. So they were sort of roadblocking him by doing that. You know, they saw that he was pulling ahead in the polls and that he was likely to be elected. And, and so they were like, oh, we're going to do a sneaky and disband ourselves or destroy ourselves so that he has a harder time trying to bring his own policies in. Yeah, but then I think they also were under the assumption that they were protected. I think like the last six months of the Ukrainian parliament, they can't be disbanded. Is that correct? Yes, it is correct. Um, yeah, so after Zelensky published uh, the his decree on disbanding the Verkhovna Rada on the presidential website, where all presidential degree, decrees must be published, uh, 50 members of parliament applied to Ukraine's constitutional court to have the decree be ruled unconstitutional and thus allowing the Verkhovna Rada to serve its whole term. And the court ruled quite controversially on June 20 of 2019 by a majority of 16 to 2 that the president's decree was valid. And their argument was quite flimsy, but they said that um, because no coalition existed, the president had every right to disband the parliament because officially... The coalition that fell apart never published who were members of it. So they said that no coalition had existed at all. And then their other argument was, is that since all power in Ukraine's constitution comes from the people, just let the people resolve the problem by a new election. That's so dodgy though. Like, seriously? Yeah. So a lot of people criticized the decision and they kind of saw this as Zelensky's first foray into trying to control Ukraine's government institutions because he even personally rocked up to the hearing to argue his case, which is, you know, quite rare. Well, I mean, as President Zelensky is head of the state, but he's not head of the government. So he doesn't really have that much control in terms of governing the country as a whole. And if he wants to nominate anyone into positions of power, you know, into ministry positions, these nominated people have to first be approved by the Verkhovna Rada and one way that um you know the parliament I don't know were they getting back at him they they decided to to block all of his nominees and and force not force him um stop him from being able to further his agenda so um Zelensky tried to pass a bill for example that would give him the power to appoint and dismiss the heads of the National Anti-Corruption Bureau and the State Investigation Bureau, but um, the Constitutional Court found this bill unconstitutional. And um, the Verkhovna Rada also refused to put his impeachment bill on their agenda, which would have allowed an impeachment to be initiated if enough MPs voted on it. So it was an interesting couple of months. And uh, I think eventually, since the court ruled that the elections were validly called, they were set for July 21st, 2019. Uh, yeah, those elections, um, Zelensky again won with 43% of the vote. And for the first time, I think in Ukraine's history, he won a majority of the seats in parliament as well. So he won 254 seats as well as a majority in the districts. One thing I do want to add is that he won a majority in, um, I think it's for voting on passing laws, right? But he slightly missed out. I think it was only... You need 300 for constitutional yeah, change. Yeah, he was really close to having constitutional changes. 
Like the ability to enact yeah. them with his own party. Yeah, he was only, I think, 50 members off from that end. He could easily team up with someone to do it. But yeah, it's kind of freaky how well he did in those elections as well. It was a shame that that, um, that majority, that unity didn't really hold because fast forward a year to now and it looks like his party has sort of fallen apart. You know, you have all these different factions. So the anti-Kolomoski law had been roadblocked by 16,000 amendments from people within Zelensky's own party. And, you know, that's it comes from a, a faction that's sort of broken away from him. Uh, yeah, it's Unofficially, it's yeah. Unofficially. And, you know, he, he might have started off with the majority and, and having a, a unified party, but it's uh, certainly not ended that way. Um, yeah, so if the parliamentary elections won, Parliament resumed on August 29th, 2019, and um, Zelensky was there and he proposed his new government. And controversially, which seems to be a common theme with Zelensky <laughs> by now, uh, the government was voted in as a whole, preventing the opposition parties from questioning individual candidate ministers on their proposed program. So once the government was formed, a lot of people had no idea what these people really stood for. But uh, elected as prime minister, Ukraine's second highest position, was Oleksiy Honcharuk, who became Ukraine's youngest ever prime minister at age 35. So, kind of, it was setting the trend that Ukraine was becoming a more younger country politically. Um, and in his first address as prime minister, Honcharuk claimed that he aimed to increase Ukraine's GDP by 40% by the end of his five-year term, which would have required a 7% yearly increase in Ukrainian GDP, which was almost double the average of the last couple of years of around 3 to 4%. So many people said that was quite optimistic, though he seemed to think that he was capable of doing it. Though, as it turned out, he wasn't in office for very long to implement those changes. But whilst he was in office, I think, Nathan, you have some things that they got up to. Yeah, so following on with this theme, this takes us to um, Ruslan Rabashabka. So, he was most famous for his role as Prosecutor General of Ukraine, which actually ended up tying him to the impeachment of Donald Trump, because he was the one that was tasked with investigating Hunter Biden and the Burisma incident that Trump was pushing Zelensky to uh, investigate. So... That's where he's most known, well, that's what he's most known for in- Global affairs. Yeah, global affairs over the last, what, six months? Yeah, six months. Um, upon taking office in 2019, Raboshabka announced that he was going to do a full audit of all cases that he had inherited from the previous prosecutor general. He also aimed to root out corrupt officials by making them uh, reapply for their positions and then they would have to take tests. So, that was a way of him actually trying to clean up not just- the acts of the government, but the people within the government as well. So, this was to ensure that all cases that he had inherited had been investigated properly. And that was due to the fact that the uh, prosecutor's office actually had a really bad reputation for corruption and not fulfilling its duties um, Also, correctly. like having politically motivated cases. Yeah. And uh, I think they were quite easily pushed by like government officials as well, in a sense that a lot of the things that they would be pursuing or investigating would be politically motivated. So, the prosecutor general- He's linked, the equivalent of the attorney general. So, he's linked to Zelensky's administration. Yeah. So, he's a sitting member of parliament, but he's appointed by the Verkhovna Rada, but usually the president recommends who they want to be. Okay. Gotcha. He's meant to be independent, but yeah. as in all countries, I don't know how independent attorney generals I mean, are. Yeah. We've seen that a lot lately. So, his appointment was backed by both the United States and the European Union. This was due to his past work 
with uh, anti-corruption organizations. So that's been something that he's been like I say, passionate about in the past. In 2016, he was a top official for the National Agency for Preventing Corruption. And this was designed to be an independent anti-corruption institute. However, he resigned the, uh, the next year in 2017 after he witnessed how much um, influence Poroshenko actually had in this independent organization and how he was, you could say, manipulating it. So upon leaving, he called for a reforming of the agency and he wanted it to be... Um, Reformed. There you go. <laughs> so be more independent. Yeah, be more independent and actually do its job. I'd say rather than you know picking political sides. So I think it's safe to say that you know he's a pretty authentic person. He's actually trying to remove corruption. He has a history of trying to re- remove corruption, and he also has um, he has his standards. If he sees something going on, he's going to remove himself from that agency because he's not going to stay in a place where he can't do his work and he can't actually try and root out corruption and have his work suppressed by political figures. Okay, so this takes us to 2020, where Roboshenko was removed from office uh, through a parliamentary vote of no confidence. And Zelensky stated that this was because there was a lack of, he showed a lack of results in his position. But most people read into it that the actual reason was because he refused to sign any of the prosecution cases against uh, the former president, Poroshenko. Uh, he believed that these were, his exact quote was that they had no merit in court. These charges, he believed, were largely exaggerated. And it was just a way for Zelensky to fulfill his promises of locking up former members of parliament that he thought were corrupt. So, because of that, Zelensky essentially had the Vokov Narada kick him out. So, that comes across as it's a pretty embarrassing thing because we see this from Zelensky, especially with the amendments to the anti-Kolomoisk law uh, bill, sorry, and now he's removing someone who is quite clearly trying to stop corruption. Zelensky's kind of making this shift now. After running on anti-corruption, he's now being heavily influenced by corrupt officials and now he's kind of done a complete 180 and he's just reverting back to, you know, business as usual, as you'd say in Ukraine. So when this happened, a representative from the banking firm, uh, Morgan Stanley, made a comment about it, and he said that the reshuffle increased the risk to reform momentum, IMF cooperation, and the fiscal balance. The pressure on the Prosecutor General Rabashabka and the head of the National Anti-Corruption Bureau might be interpreted as a step back for the anti-corruption efforts. So people voted for Zelensky, and he came into power with all these hopes and these high hopes that he could fix the country and it seems like it's just all fallen apart most likely through influences behind the scenes that are you know swinging his opinions in other ways um so andrei what's up with uh now what's happening yeah so the new prosecutor general irena venediktova she was installed by zelensky as uh, the first female prosecutor yes general. as the first female prosecutor but a lot of this uh a lot of people see her as easily manipulated or kind of corrupt in a sense because a lot of what she's saying and a lot of what she's doing is following what Zelensky wants. Venediktova, she is now being pus- uh, pushed by Zelensky to investigate Raboshapka against his alleged corruption, even though many people in the West don't see any corruption in him. Yeah, and that kind of brings us to like a nice close of the first chapter of Zelensky's ter- uh, like first year. And now if we take a few steps back to New Year's Eve, which kind of brings us to the start of Ukraine's next scandal, Oman. So um, New Year's Eve is uh, one of Ukraine's largest celebrations and it kind of forms like the start of the 
country shutdown for late December, mid-January. And as part of that, Zelensky did the traditional presidential address on New Year's Eve, and then his uh, office announced that he'd be spending the holidays in Bukovail with his family, getting some nice needed downtime from Kiev. Now, what's interesting is on January 5th, photos emerge of Zelensky staying at the Ritz-Carlton in Oman's capital city of Muscat. And uh, staying at this hotel costs a minimum of 4,000 euros a night. So a lot of people are like, wait, how did you appear in Oman all of a sudden? Weren't you meant to be in Bukovail? And two hours after these photos were first published in the Ukrainian media, the presidential's office released a statement saying that Zelensky had gone there on a personal trip and during that trip he was drumming up support for Middle Eastern investment in Ukrainian projects and to prove that they published a photo of him meeting with uh, with Oman's then foreign minister but what's funny is is that Ukraine and Oman have very weak relations like Ukraine has an honorary consulate in Oman and Oman has no representation in Ukraine so it's kind of a weird place to go to drum up investment when you have no real official ties. The other thing that they found that was quite weird and seemed that the photo existed more to just hide the fact that he was on holiday was that he was meeting with the foreign minister. Like usually a president meets with either the head of state or the head of government, not just a random minister. But at the same time, Oman's sultan, uh, Karbos bin Said, was on his deathbed and died January 10th. So... I don't think that was on the top of his priorities was meeting with Zelensky. And this brought a lot of attention and a lot of people drew the distinction that a couple of years ago, Zelensky had made a big deal. that Poroshenko went on holiday to the Maldives secretly and he even made a point of it of doing a whole skit on his show, making fun of Poroshenko hiding overseas on holiday. The other bit that's scandalous about this trip, which I know, like, so how can you have so many scandals in one trip, was that, uh, and it kind of links into the next point, during his trip, the flight disaster of Ukrainian International Airlines Flight 752 occurred and because Zelensky wasn't there on an official government trip, he had to get home somehow. And the way he did that was chartering a plane back to Kiev. But that same plane brought Russian Security Council Secretary Nikolai Partushev to Oman. And according to Russia's security hierarchy, Partushev is the second most important person after Putin himself. And they were like, it's a bit sus that this guy comes to Oman and then you use his plane to get back to Ukraine. So a lot of people assumed that they had planned a meeting in Oman to discuss things out of sight from the Ukrainian and Western media and come up to an unofficial agreement. But then Flight 725 happened and Zelensky had to rush back to Ukraine. So hopefully no actual meeting occurred, but a lot of people still find it quite sus. But even if there wasn't a meeting, it's um, the fact that he would be willing to go to such a meeting just talk, tells a lot about his character. I think it's the problem is having someone like that in office as opposed to whether, you know, they actually ended up having the meeting. Yeah, like a lot of people found it. Trying to covering it up with like a holiday, it doesn't really make it any better. It's just as bad as Poroshenko in going on holiday, but like undercover. Yeah, like so. no one's going to blame you if you go on a holiday. It's more the fact that, you know, you said you were going to be in Bukovail and now you turn up in Oman. Yeah, it's 
two opposite sides, really. <laughs> As you mentioned, Alexa, part of the reason why Zelensky left Oman was because Ukrainian International Airlines Flight 752 was shot down by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which the Iranian president claimed was an unforgivable mistake. And now what's interesting about that is in the first three days after the plane was shot down, Iran, the Iranian government, they claimed technical error. And so at that time, Zelensky in Ukraine was agreeing with it. They were like, yeah, okay. Iran said that that's what happened. We believe you. It was a technical error. Then Trudeau made a big fuss in Canada, the UK, which also had a few passengers on board and the US had uh, stakes in it as well. They were like, oh, no, we, we think we've we done have some investigation. Yeah, we, we have intelligence. We've investigated. We are like pretty sure that it was shot down you know iran what are you doing saying otherwise and eventually iran was like well yeah you're right um we we shot it down that was our bad and then Zelensky was like oh yeah but this whole time that iran was saying it was a technical error we had theories that it was shot down but we just didn't say it and i'm like why why not say it like are you are you scared of iran like do you not want to annoy iran (laughs) yeah 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 it's kind of trying to he's trying to keep it like a neutral position but in in that type of event i don't think you should stay as a neutral party when yeah. you've had like your flight shot down i think you should take an aggressive stance and be proactive trying to find out the truth about what's happening not just let it be covered up by others yeah because i think his goal was to try and get the bodies back and he didn't want to annoy iran but i'm kind of like your like your country's plane was shut down like like you said you gotta like stand up for your rights like i know ukraine's like a middle power but, like, you got to stand up for, like, the truth. Moving along, 2020 being a glorious year where everything goes right for the good world. Start, good start. Uh, we moved to coronavirus in Ukraine. So the first case that Ukraine recorded was on March 3rd with a Ukrainian citizen who had flown back from Italy to Romania and then drove by car to Chernivtsi where he lived. So, yeah, he was the first recorded case. And then the next day, Ukraine went and fired its government. <laughs> So a lot of people found it quite weird. Like a lot of people were saying that it was strange that Ukraine was firing a pretty reform-minded government at the time. And it was a quite liberal government in the terms that they were trying to pursue reforms. And considering there was a global health crisis, it was quite strange to be firing your government when you should be preparing for what was turning out to be now a global pandemic. And so after this, things quickly spun out of control. And since then, Ukraine has now is on its third health minister in six months. So there was one under Honchuruk, one in the new government that was elected. He lasted a month. Yeah, barely any time to do anything, really. And now we have this new one. And this new one is now saying that the relatively popular reforms implemented by Ulyana former Suprun. health minister Ulyana Suprun are terrible. And we need to go back to the Soviet model of funding hospitals. So a lot of people are pretty annoyed at him, but so far he hasn't actually reversed the reform. His argument is is that you shouldn't shut down hospital villages that cater for like five people because that's closing hospitals and that's bad. So And because coronavirus hit, Ukraine had to implement a lockdown and the hardest hit regions of Ukraine are Kiev, Chernivtsi and Zahidno Ukraina. And it's kind of like, it's you know, to be expected that Zahidno Ukraina or Western Ukraine would be the hardest hit because they have the highest percentage of their population that works abroad in the European Union and they send remittances back to Ukraine. And because all these people have now lost their jobs in Ukraine, in Europe, because they all worked, you know, low-end 
paying jobs that no one else wanted to do. They've stopped sending money back into Ukraine and now Ukraine's unemployment rate has skyrocketed because all these people have had to come home. And this has caused, you know, quite a struggle for the government, but which has forced them to go after this eternal IMF funding. And hopefully once that occurs, you know, we'll finally have an episode explaining Ukraine's glorious battle to regain IMF funding again. So in response to the coronavirus pandemic, um, Ukraine has adopted a adaptive quarantine model, which has partially revived the national economy since its fall. Um, and that included reopening subways, city fairs and markets, uh, outdoor sports grounds, shopping malls, hotels, restaurants, but for takeaway only, and long distance and international rail transport. On the 27th of May, the Cabinet of Ministers approved a program to further stimulate the domestic economy. Um, and it came up with a battery of three short, medium and long-term, long-term goal. goals, you know, ways to, to combat the issue. So, for example, a short-term measure that they came up with was the development of industry standards and a temporary exemption from taxes. For the medium term, they plan to provide assistance in the production of dual-use goods and medical supplies and a strategic measure or, you know, something preventative to, in case, you know, something else happens like this ever again. They planned on emergency cooperation with partner states and a revision of trade and economic relations with the European Union. Protectionism was also, or is also a um, a policy that has been introduced or discussed. Yes, I think they're kind of seeing how the like America and like the UK are all kind of going protectionist again in some of their policies. So they think that they might be able to emulate it in Ukraine, but considering that Ukraine is quite an export dominated economy with agriculture and steel, I don't know how much protectionism will work there. So this program is based on three fundamental pillars of access to finance, access to markets and ensuring modernization and sustainable development. And this policy or this mindset um, sort of builds on Zelensky's earlier initiative of introducing cheap credit into the Ukrainian market in a plan to bring back, like you said, Alexa, um, Ukrainians living living, living and working abroad. Um, They've all come back to Ukraine and, you know, Zelensky hopes to bring in cheap interest rates so that they can stimulate the economy that way. But I think we should clarify, cheap interest rates for Ukraine are like 5-6%. Not cheap by our standards. Not cheap by Western standards, but cheap for Ukrainian standards. So hopefully it will keep people in the country because, you know, innovation is always good. Moving on to Zelensky's foreign policies on Ukraine and his uh, representation of Ukraine in the West, he's got quite a lot to deal with. First of all, Krem. For the past five, six years now, not much has been done about Krem in terms of uh, raising awareness or having some sort of dialogue. But Anton Koronevich, the permanent representative of the president of Ukraine and autonomous republic of uh, Krem, uh, he's starting a strategy of how to deal with Krem, how to get back Krem and working with the rest of uh, the government. So. At the moment, they're, they're making a strategy, even though there hasn't been one for six years. It's kind of been awkward. Mainly the, mainly the reason is because Russia is constantly saying, 
Crimea is a no-go zone, it's over. The situation is past, right? We're not going to talk about it. And one of the other reasons why is because if any time it's ever brought up, uh, Russia's always like, oh, we're not going to deal with it. We're going to intensify what's happening in Donbass, right? We're going to make uh, some conflict rise and happen there. So that's a lot of struggle that Ukraine's had in the deoccupation of Crimea. And he goes on to saying about how to deal with all of this. And one thing he does mention is that Ukraine should create another dialogue, sort of like the Minsk agreements or the TCG, the trilateral contact, co- uh, contact group, just like they do from Donbass, except for Krem, right? Because he believes that Krem should be a separate dialogue because of how different the situation is there. And Zelensky hasn't really brought up much of this in his first year. Even in his election campaign, he never mentioned it unless he was asked about it. So uh, he has a very weak strategy for returning Krem back to Ukraine. He's kind of more focused on getting Donbass back. And I think that was highlighted in his yearly press gathering. It was brought up in the last five minutes of the uh, interview. And that was, you know, when the... Uh, when the Crimean Tatar channel themselves asked a question about it and she had to shout it before he walked off the stage and it kind of forced him to answer the question. Yeah, so Zanzi kind of used this as a half to four and just kind of forgetting about it for now, really, which isn't what he should be doing. He should be focusing on reuniting all of Ukraine, not just bit by bit, right? Because it leaves it for worse in the future. But um, one thing that he has been campaigning quite uh, strongly and he's uh, very proud of is his political prisoners uh, returning back from Russia and occupied regions of Ukraine. And since his inauguration, 150 prisoners have returned home from Russia. And there are talks with bringing back more prisoners, but so far with the whole COVID-19 situation, not much has been happening right now. But in his first first year, he's had three successful um, transfer of prisoners under Poroshenko. I think there's only a couple, not by much ahead, though. No, I think there years. was regular, like, I think under Poroshenko, there were prisoner transfers. Oh, okay. um, it's just I don't think Poroshenko made a huge deal about them. Like, it was kind of like the story of the day, and then the next day it was kind of over. But I think Zelensky just had the... He had the political luck of freeing the naval sailors, which was why it was such a big story. Yeah, so with Zelensky returning the sailors was a big a completion that he did, and it's what a success he had. The other success that he had at the end of the year was the all-for-all prisoner transfer with the occupied regions of Ukraine, uh, where Ukraine actually managed to get a majority back rather than giving more up for Ukrainian citizens. But there's still a lot left in captivity. Yeah, there's still a lot left and there's a lot that aren't uh, known or where their whereabouts are. A lot of them are known but aren't disclosed of where they are, where they're located. So there's still a lot of Ukraine's, uh, Ukrainians missing and Russia's clearly going to keep using this as a pressure point because they can just keep racking up pres- uh, political prisoners, but Ukraine can only do so much to return them all. Uh, another change that Zelensky's had is his uh, victim and aggressor uh, complex that he that Ukraine has with Russia. Poroshenko was very proactive in claiming that Ukraine was a victim of Russian aggression for the past five years, and that it was always Russia's fault. It wasn't uh, Ukraine's internal conflict or a civil war like Russia campaigns it to be, but rather 
an act of war between Ukraine and Russia. But Zelensky has moved away from this clear, defined terms of Ukraine and Russia. He's gone to a more neutral stance of uh, not calling Russia as an aggressor, but rather as a overseer in a sense, as the occupied regions are in control by Russia. But yeah, it's like a weird way of how he describes it. So he says that Russian aggression is real, but then he refuses to incorporate that into his statements. He's always very vague about the aggression. Yeah. But then when people corner him, he says, yes, of course, Russia is the aggressor, but it hasn't clicked into his like speeches when he talks. Yeah, he doesn't view Putin as an ultimate danger, but rather someone that he can talk with, discuss with this. Look into his eyes and make a deal. Yeah. See, I would argue that's um, pretty intentional. Like if someone is going to the effort of writing a speech, then you have the decision whether you're going to talk about Russia as an aggressor or not. I feel like when he gets, like you said, if he's getting ambushed by people and asking it, suddenly then when it's awkward for him, oh, yeah, Russia Russia is the aggressor and he's probably just wanting to get out of that situation. So I don't know if he has something going on in the background that makes him not want to bring it up in speeches and if there's some reason, I can't see the reason why he wouldn't bring it up. So there must be something else. It is changing slowly in a way, like from the start of his presidency, he has become more assertive in that Russian aggression is behind a lot of the problems, but he still is because he still thinks he can make a deal with Putin and his goal is trying to not upset him, but you can't make a deal with Putin realistically. Like many Western and better leaders have tried and have failed. So I think Zelensky's coming to that realization, especially after they met in Paris for the first time. I I still don't think he's realized how dangerous Putin is and yeah. just trying to talk with him. I think he's realized that it's a difficult challenge, but I don't think he views it still as a... It's not that Poroshenko wanted the war to happen. It's now like, oh yeah, this is a slightly harder situation than what it was. Yeah. Yeah, but like, as if you don't know that Putin's you know, not exactly on his side. Like, in um, Zelensky's inauguration, Putin wouldn't even congratulate him on gaining the presidency. Like, he didn't even say you know, cool, you, you did it. He he was like, oh, I'll talk to you when we have something to talk about or I'll congratulate you when you've come up with a solution for our problems. Yeah, so I don't know why he thinks he can make a deal with Putin because Putin realistically only reacts to strength. That's why he's still scared of the states and China while, like, Ukraine is kind of, he sees it beneath him and not even worthy of being a country. So yeah. I don't know how Zelensky with his kind of Soviet mentality... And the other be thing, able to stand up to The other thing I don't understand is that uh, Russia and Putin, they have been constantly saying that Ukraine's not a state and that um, we're, like, we're just a Western puppet controlled by America and stuff like that, right? He's putting down Ukraine every time he has the chance. And I just don't see how Zelensky doesn't see this. I think he views it as that he can talk with a person rather than someone that's like a bully or aggressor like have you guys seen the movie darkest hour one about winston churchill yeah and he rages at his cabinet because they were trying to do uh peace with hitler and he yells at them and he's like you can't negotiate with a tiger when your head is in its mouth i think he doesn't also realize that time isn't on his side when it comes to the annexation the longer he puts it off the harder it's going to be to reintegrate those parts of the country like in crimea where they've shut down all the ukrainian language schools that's going to be really hard to bring those people back 
and bring back their national identity as Ukrainian if they now see all these ties to Russia. You have kids growing up there now. I mean, kids that were born when the annexation has started are now going to school now. Like, that's how long it's been. And all they know is that, oh, we're in Russia. We're in Russia. We speak Russian. And we're in Russia. There's this generation forming that thinks that they're in Russia. And he needs to get a hold of this because, yeah, the longer he puts it off, the worse it's going to get. And the thing is, is that um, there isn't actually a strategy on how to deal with this when they, uh, when these territories become uh, under Ukraine's control. There isn't a strategy to deal with all this propaganda that's been pumped into these kids. Um, there's no way of actually integrating them back into society and to view Ukraine as a, as a friend, not a foe. And I think, yeah, they will, Ukraine will have to take the leaf out of Germany and how they reintegrated East Germany back into Western society. But I think it'll be a lot worse because of the hardcore brainwashing that's happening in both Donbass and Krem. I think you'd see something very similar to like when the US invaded Iraq and they didn't have a strategy of how to manage an occupation and you just had um, insurgencies just jump up like everywhere because they had no strategy whatsoever of how to deal with it once you take over the country or then what? Yeah, one thing to mention is that Ukrainians are, in a sense, um, kind of divided. Like, they will divide themselves um, if you don't, like, align with them. And so, a lot of a lot of these kids, when they do come back to Ukraine, uh, the rest of Ukraine might see them as the Donbass kids, in a sense, of being, they were occupied. They don't understand how what it is to be a real Ukrainian. And because of this... Um, definition by the rest of Ukraine, these kids will form uh, kind of like a pact or a group around this name, being, oh, where the Donbass kids were different, right? And they will become stronger together. And because Ukraine, uh, because these kids in Ukraine, they've grew, uh, they grew up actually learning about, oh, everyone can have different values in a sense, right? Or have different opinions. These kids grew up having one opinion. And because of this, they're a lot stronger with that one opinion because they're all united. It'd be like Northern Ireland kind of thing. Where you know they're they're so close, but yet they have ident- completely different views. Yeah, completely different, and their identity is completely different, despite the fact that they are literally in Ireland. Yeah, it'll be a long and painful process to reintegrate them back in, but they have to start planning it now because this isn't the kind of thing that you can wing. Like you're putting the future of these regions at risk, and they're both going to be like, especially Donbass is going to be a hellhole to rebuild because it's destroyed from war. And then who knows what Russia will do to Crimea when they evacuate. Like when they gave the ships back to Ukraine, they stole everything, including the toilets. So who knows what they're going to do when they leave Crimea. Yeah, that's a good point, Alexa. But shifting now to, you know, the big perspective here, how would you summarize his entire first year in office? I think, yeah, we've seen Zelensky grow as a political leader now, and he's slowly learning the levers of government and how it works. And he's managed to build relationships with the West and, you know, have contact with Putin. I think now the second year we'll kind of see Zelensky's control over Ukraine solidify and his agenda become more pronounced in what he wants to do. But Ukraine has an active civil society. And if he starts straying too far off the path that Ukrainian society has set for itself, he, um, he won't have a pleasant second year in office.
Last week, there was a tense day-long standoff which took place between Ukrainian police and an armed hostage taker in the city of Lutsk. 13 people were taken hostage on a bus after a man told police he had rigged the bus with explosives. So fortunately, the gunman surrendered, and this was after President Zelensky uh, posted a video to his official Facebook page, which was asking Ukrainians to watch another video, which incidentally, it was a Joaquin Phoenix documentary, which talked about uh, animal exploitation. And after this, the uh, hostage taker, he, uh, he surrendered. The man has been identified as Maxim Krevosh, who previously had been convicted for crimes that included fraud and illegal uh, possession of arms and explosives. So this is kind of within the line of things he's kind of done before. Uh, He also made demands for various government and judicial bodies, as well as for the Orthodox Church leaders to declare themselves terrorists. So all up, this was a positive result as all of the hostages were released and none of them were killed, which is fantastic. But uh, what do you guys think this means for President Zelensky and how do you think he handled the situation? I'm going to say what a solid set of demands on his part. But um, in general, I think it sets a really bad precedent for the president or any head of state or leader to be negotiating with terrorists. Yeah, like it puts Ukraine and Zelensky in a worse position because now Russia can view this as a weak point that they can take advantage of and push Zelensky into uh, crossing those red lines that he's constantly stating that he'll never cross. So I think it's just another leverage for the Kremlin and the Russian separatists to use against him. Yeah, because I was thinking, like, I know this is a rather small situation when you compare it to the war that's going on, but this is, well, this is kind of like that slippery slope thing. If he's now given into this one terrorist because he thought, oh, his demands aren't too bad then the next time something that is probably maybe slightly worse, he'll say, okay, it's not too bad, and then he'll keep going, and he'll keep going, he'll keep accepting more, and then that's when it starts. So I think at first, like with the separatists, he, he's probably not going to um, jump and you know accept all of their demands, but I do think this has started a bad, um, yeah, that bad slippery slope towards you know him going to have or starting to give in to other demands. But um, I'm happy he got the positive result. I just think it could have been done uh, in a better way. And like Alexa said, left it up to the professionals to actually come in and take over and, you know, work out those negotiations. Yeah, so um, researching for this topic, I was looking at some statistics about terrorism incidents in Ukraine. And according to the Global Terrorism Database, from the year 1970 until 2018, there were 1,745 terrorist incidents in Ukraine and almost 80% of those happened in the year 2014 which was the beginning of the war that's currently going on. So Donetsk is the hardest hit region which has almost 200 cases in this time frame and then it sort of drops down after that so the, the second highest number of incidents per region is in Kyiv and then Shtashta and Luhansk and Odessa. Yeah, it's understandable that Donetsk would be number one in that category. And yeah, that's what we're also worried about, that such a terrorist-prone area is going to read into the president's uh, handling of this particular situation. I really, really hope that we're wrong, but there is a reason that nations and political leaders choose not to negotiate with terrorists. This 
This week in the news, Ukraine, Poland and Lithuania established the Lublin Triangle, a new trilateral initiative that aims to enhance politics, economics and social cooperation between the three countries. Ukraine has attempted another ceasefire with the Russian separatists in Donbass that lasted about an hour. 29th of July was Ukrainian Special Forces Day. Ukraine's Prosecutor General's Office has laid charges against Kherson Oblast Rada Chairperson Vladislav Manger for the ordering and organizing of the murder of Kherson activist Katerina Hanzyuk. And July 28th marked the 1032nd anniversary of the baptism of Kievan Rus. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We'll be back next week with more Yuki Life Abroad. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or visit us at ukilifeabroad.com.